Well, good morning. I'm going to add my welcome to that of uh, Mike Strohs. My name is also Mike, Mike Traven. I'm one of the three pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church, and I'm grateful to be standing before you here this morning, grateful for the sound team and all who serve here and and how they support um, what we do here in the sanctuary. Well, we continue this morning in our series on Matthew's Gospel. We are beginning the first of one of Jesus' major teachings in this Gospel. This Gospel is, is organized into five major sections that, that mirror the five books of Moses that Jews would be familiar with as the Torah. And Matthews organized his material this way to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises of the scriptures. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience who's been formed by hundreds of years of experience of their culture, of, of their faith, and what it means to be the people of God. They've been living under a set of promises and a, and a law that has defined for them what does the good life look like? Promises that God has held out to them. Promises for a land and people. And promises that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. Perhaps since the beginning of human history, since the fall of humankind, people have wondered what does it look like to be well off in life, particularly in the the struggles of life. So how do we, as modern-day disciples of Jesus, how do we know when we're well off? What has our culture been telling us about what a, a flourishing, blessed human existence looks like? How does our culture define it for us? Well, as any human being asks that question, certainly their, their own cultural context informs that answer greatly. We live in one of the richest countries in the world. Even the least financially well-off American is, is probably better off than the majority of the world's population. So how we tend to look through a lens of, of what, how do we define who's well-off and who isn't might look very different for us. But what, what defines a well-to-do American? The American dream tells us to, to get an education, to get a job, to make money, to be, to own a home, and to accumulate things. I think, I think we've become very materialistic in our notion as Americans of what it means to be well off. It's not a criticism. I, I enjoy things. Uh, I might have a purchasing problem on Amazon. Maybe you can identify with that. Um, but there's been a move in America that's growing toward minimalism. It's not big, but it's people who have, as they've pursued this American dream and, and what it means to be well off, well off, as they've moved up the corporate ladder, as they've accumulated wealth and things, They've realized that it's, it's not fulfilling for them. I realize that's not for everybody, and this is not a sermon about the, the perils or 
um, the evils of riches, although uh, money is the root of many evils. There's nothing wrong with being well-off. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with having things. But it's, it's what we make of them. It's how we pursue them. It's how we use them. And so this move toward minimalism is about shedding the things in our lives that don't serve a purpose, that don't bring us value. In fact, for many of these people who've moved toward minimalism, their things, their pursuits were not life-giving, but literally stifling, life-ending. They couldn't see the purpose in it, and so they, they've moved toward minimalism. And it's an interesting image because Jesus is calling his followers to an upside-down kingdom, if you will. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, right, that, that many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. He's, he's giving his disciples, as we see throughout this Gospel, a radical call to a different way of living, a different thing to pursue. And it all starts in this Gospel right here in this text. This Sermon on the Mount. I'll come back to that in a moment. But there is a a need within us. We have this innate desire to achieve happiness, to be well-off, to be a flourishing people. It's it's a good desire. It's a God-given desire that we would want to flourish as people. But... As a fellow human being, I can say I believe firmly that it, our human nature is resistant to the hard work of spiritual transformation. If you're like me, it's, it can be laborious. It can be a chore. It's not our natural way of being to pursue the spiritual transformation because our flesh wants to be in control of our lives. Our flesh wants to rule our hearts. Our flesh is what is constantly vying with God to hold sway over our lives. And so we can become superficial in the way that we live out our faith. And a superficiality of of living out one's faith, it's not a new problem. Jesus criticized the Pharisees primarily for their superficiality. They looked great on the outside, but it was the inside that had lacked attention. And like Pharisees, we too can find ourselves often tempted to to go through the motions of our faith. And we might experience different seasons of this, right? None of us are perfect, but, but there can be a superficiality to our faith. We do all the right things. We say all the right words. But is is the way that we're practicing our faith really transforming our hearts? Are we spending time in the word, meditating on scripture, sitting before the Lord and, and asking the spirit to change us? Or are we simply reading our Bible, checking the block on our reading plan, Or even pursuing subjective experiences. Many in the church worldwide like church for the experience it gives them. 
not perhaps the deeper things. I don't know. But we can be inconsistent in the things and the approach to our faith. And we can have extremes in our, what I would call our operational theology. Perhaps on two extreme ends is, is, uh, we can be overly legalistic. That is, we can focus on the do's and the don'ts of our faith. And in, in doing so, we can feel really good. God has clearly defined the things that I need to do and the things that I shouldn't do. And as long as I operate within those boundaries, I'm comfortable. On the other end of that spectrum, we can overemphasize grace. We can emphasize grace so much that we don't take seriously the things that Jesus is preaching and is calling us to do. And so our question that we seek to answer this morning is, is how are we to live in the reality of God's kingdom? And Jesus sets out to answer this question, to clearly define it for his disciples and the crowds that have gathered because it sets the stage for everything else that he teaches in this gospel. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, our ever-present companion and counselor, uh, would you focus our minds this morning and, and give us fresh eyes to, to see your vision of the kingdom of God Open our hearts to where and how it is that you're calling of a, calling each of us to more deeply participate in making your kingdom a reality in this present age until your kingdom comes again in the fullness of your glory in the name of your son. Amen. Well, up to this point in our sermon series, we've been seeing Jesus, his birth. We've learned about who he is and the prophetic promises that he's fulfilling. And then we saw last week in chapter four that Jesus, after being baptized by John and enduring a season of uh, wilderness wandering, if you will, mirroring Israel's 40 years in the desert, that Jesus begins his public ministry by proclaiming the very same words that John proclaimed, a gospel of repentance an announcement that the kingdom of heaven has come, that it's at hand. And so Jesus has begun his public ministry in Galilee. And, and Mike Stroh told us last week that what did this ministry look like? It consisted of preaching. He preached the good news that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And he healed the sick, sick of all kinds, people with physical ailments, People who were demon-possessed. People with emotional and psychological problems. The scriptures tell us that he healed them all. And these were prophetic signs that the Messiah had come to Israel. But he was also forming a community. Jesus called people to himself. It was the purpose of his preaching and his healing. to, To draw people to him. To help people see that the kingdom of heaven had arrived in this present age. And that the Messiah that they had longed for had come. And so he was preaching and healing and forming a community, chapter 4 tells us. 
And crowds had come from far and wide. Enormous crowds were following him. And so Jesus, seeing that these these crowds, it says here in in chapter 5, verse 1, the beginning of our text this morning, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain and he sat down and he opened his mouth to teach and he called his disciples to him. These first two verses seem merely like context clues, but they're really packed with prophetic significance for who Jesus was and why he had come, and what it is that he had to say to these people. These verses say, it said there were crowds and there were disciples. These were the crowds who had been hearing of his healings, hearing of the things that he was saying about himself, and they were drawn to him. Some, out of a genuine desire to to know more about who he was and what he was saying, and others out of idle curiosity, some perhaps even threatened by the things that he was saying and wanting to know what he was up to. But but large crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went. And so seeing the crowds, he goes up on a mountainside, and he sits down to teach, and he calls his disciples to him. So we see in this passage that there are both crowds and disciples Jesus begins to to teach. And this place on a mountaintop is is significant. Mountains or high places in the ancient culture were places where the gods came down to speak. Mountains had figured significantly in Israel's history. Mount Ararat, where the ark came to rest. Mount Moriah, where, where Abraham was called to sacrifice his only son. Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses and gave him the law. Mount Carmel, where the prophet Elijah did battle with the prophets of Baal and displayed the the glory and the power of the one true living God. Mountains held places of significance in Israel's history. And so the fact that that Jesus would go up to a mountainside had both a practical and a spiritual significance. The practicality being that he needed a high place to, to be able to address the crowd so people could hear him. But also because it showed a place of authority. It spoke to who Jesus was. And the things that he, he began to say. God himself had come down to a mountain and met with Moses and gave Moses the law. And then here we see God, the son, going up to a mountain and giving an exposition on the law in some sense, if you will. So Jesus goes up to this mountain, this place of kingdom significance, to begin to explain to the crowds of what kingdom citizenship looks like. And so these beatitudes that we see in verses 3 through 12 are some of the most well-known portions of Scripture. Of anyone who's a student of history or moral philosophy, people know the beatitudes like they know the Ten Commandments. It's some of the most marvelous moral sayings recognized throughout the world. But... 
the Beatitudes are more than just this set of moral maxims or a code of things to follow. Jesus is telling his disciples, this is who the kingdom is available to. These Beatitudes, it's not a word we use a lot. Probably never heard it outside of a church context. I know I haven't. But, but Beatitudes, they're a genre of literary statements. They're not commands, but they're, they're observations. They're a value statement. A statement of a condition. It, it comes from this Greek word that we translate as blessed. And so a beatitude is a, is a statement that, that indicates the condition by which a person is blessed or happy or flourishing because of their circumstances. And as we look at these beatitudes, I want to draw your attention that if you, that verse 3 and verse 10 form a, a literary device that's not well known anymore. It's called an inclusio. It's a structural device to alert readers to an idea. And if you look at verses 3 and verse 10, what does it say? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 10 reads, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is, used, is saying here, how Matthew has arranged these sayings in his gospel, is to show that everything that falls in between of these, these are the people to whom the kingdom of heaven is available to. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called Sons of God. These beatitudes, they, they delineate the essential features and characteristics of Christians. But even greater than that in this context is these people that came to see Jesus, these were not the people who felt like they were winning in life. These were the desperate people. The people that Dallas Willard calls the spiritual zeros. These were the people who felt like they were not the people that their community would look at and say, well, they're blessed. They're killing it. They're flourishing. These are desperate people. They're poor. They're, they're literally poor. Materially. But many of them are poor spiritually. They're thinking, I don't, I'm not blessed by my culture standards. If you were a practicing Jew, there were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If, if you weren't blessed, then you probably had a really low view of yourself and you probably thought God didn't think much of you either. And so these poor and spirited people who are desperate to know that they're included 
in God's kingdom. The people who are mourning, not just mourning the death of a loved one, but mourning the loss of relationship. Women who'd been cast out of their marriages at the whim of a husband. Family members estranged from each other. People who'd lost their way of living. Mourning being at a stage of life where they can't provide for their families anymore. Those were the mourners, the desperate people. And among them were the meek, those who were powerless in their society. They didn't have the wealth or the cultural or societal clout to make anything happen. They just had to take whatever it is that their culture gave them. And then there were those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A righteousness that would right wrongs, perhaps, that they had experienced. Or or just hungering for the righteousness in a self-aware sense. That them knowing that the state of their heart was not right with the God of the universe. Among them were the merciful, those who perhaps their own culture viewed as weak. Mercy isn't a a quality that many cultures tend to elevate. In our in our church culture, we know a bit about mercy, but in the world, being showing mercy is a sign of weakness. And then there are the the pure in heart. It's interesting, I was challenged in my preparation by uh, one scholar who looked at this verse and said, the pure in heart are the perfectionists. They're the ones that see everything wrong in everything and everyone else, including themselves. Their hearts are pure, and it's so much so in their own minds that nothing that anyone can do for them is good enough. He says they're the ones that wanted Jesus to wash his hands because even he wasn't good enough for them. And so those who who think that they're above all of it, the Pharisees, if you will, Jesus says even they're blessed in the kingdom of God. And blessed are the peacemakers. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, he he talks about those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In one sense, these two beatitudes are indicators of whether you're getting the others right of whether you are living out your citizenship in the kingdom. Because the world is threatened by kingdom values and kingdom ways of living. And so, in a sense, it's a a litmus test of how well you're conforming to the kingdom or the world. And so these Beatitudes, they describe the types of people the kingdom of heaven is available to. Jesus is saying there's nobody who's excluded from the kingdom. It doesn't matter whether you're materially rich or poor, you're welcome. 
doesn't matter how powerful you are in the community, you're welcome. doesn't matter how self-righteous or sanctimonious you are, you're welcome in God's kingdom. Because the kingdom doesn't depend on anything that you have done, that you will do or are doing. Because Jesus has done it all. The Beatitudes contain the whole of the gospel. And so the Beatitudes were good news for these people. And the Beatitudes, they, they reveal our utter helplessness. Because only Jesus can perfectly embody them. If you and I look at this list, as a scorecard of of who we are and how we're doing, then we're at risk of misreading them because they are an invitation to a life patterned after Christ. And let's make no mistake about that. Jesus is inviting us to pattern our lives after who he is. But only Jesus perfectly embodies the Beatitudes. Jesus the humble servant. Jesus, the son of God who, who humbled himself by putting on flesh and condescended to walk among broken humanity. Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus mourned. He mourned for Jerusalem. He mourned for the death of his friend Lazarus. He mourned for his people to know who it was that walked among them. Jesus mourned. And Jesus was meek. Jesus offered no defense of the accusations against him. Jesus took up his cross and went up to Calvary and submitted himself to the most horrific punishment that humankind could met out to somebody who deserved none of it. Jesus was meek. And Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus desires that, that you and I would be fully righteous before God. And Jesus has made a way for you and I to be that in our present condition. Jesus hungered and thirsts for righteousness so much that he died so that you and I can be viewed as righteous and perfect In the eyes of God. And Jesus is merciful. Forgiving the sins of many. And Jesus is the ultimate purity of heart. And the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus who was persecuted for his righteousness. And so Jesus is... Through these beatitudes, he's offering people not only a view of what, who is the kingdom of heaven available to, the kingdom of heaven which has arrived in their midst, but he's inviting them into a life to be patterned after him. As I said earlier, he's portraying the image of an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that looked markedly different from what the first century Jews were expecting. Their view of the kingdom was militaristic and powerful, something that would overthrow the yoke of the Roman Empire, that the Jews would emerge to their place 
of presumed power and significance in the world, but their view of it was an earthly view. It wasn't God's view of what his kingdom would look like. Again, Jesus' view is that the last shall be first. And if we think we're first, then really we're last. And so we've got to recognize the Beatitudes as an appeal to live in a certain way. And we've got to see ourselves in the light of them. But when we look at this list, it seems daunting. And it is, because only Jesus can live these out. But make no mistake, friends, we're, we're invited to, to look at them and see ourselves in light of them. Where, perhaps, do you and I, when we look at this list, where do we find ourselves? Both as a reminder of the incredible, steadfast love of God that invites people just like us into his kingdom just as we are? And where do we see ourselves perhaps not living into these attributes of heart and character that Jesus desires for all his community? So we've, we've got to see and face ourselves in the light of them, but, but we also have to recognize that there's only one way that we can live out our kingdom citizenship in this present life. And it's as a community of people. Because while some of us might be better at some of these things and failing at others, there's somebody else who's, who's better at the thing we're not, who's doing better or perhaps having more, um, success, if you will. I struggle to even use those terms in this context. But where you may not be doing so well at being a peacemaker, perhaps, somebody else in our body is. And where we come together in our diversity of gifts and experiences and and heart conditions, we are able to form this community of Christ followers that, that begins to live out the identity and the mission that Jesus has assigned to us. And so Jesus, standing up, beginning to preach this sermon, which we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, but at the beginning here, Jesus is showing them what does kingdom citizenship look like. But as we read this morning, we see in verses 13 through 15, Jesus also, not only does he give the church or his community of followers an identity, but he gives them a mission. And he uses this powerful set of parallel images to show us both our identity and our mission as a community. He says to them, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he says, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. He doesn't say, become salt and light. I've given you, I've just told you these set 
of conditions that describe what a good kingdom citizen is. He doesn't say become them, become salt and light. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's it's a present condition that that tells us that we're the recipients of this incredible, gracious gift of God. That we have been called to be his community. That we have been called to be his representatives in this present age, on this broken world, in our fallen communities and spheres of influence. Well, salt in the ancient world was significant. We get the term salary from salt. Roman soldiers were paid in measures of salt. Salt had incredible value culturally. It was viewed as, could be used as a seasoning. It could be used as a preservative. It could be used to to purify things. But salt by itself doesn't really do much. Salt just sitting by itself. It has to be mixed with something in order to have its effect. So for salt to be useful, it has to mix with what surrounds it in order to season it, in order to preserve it, in order to purify it. But Jesus reminds them, he says, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? A salt that's lost its taste is no longer useful to the kingdom. Well, how does salt lose its taste? I don't know about you, but I've, I've never dumped salt in my mouth, which I don't do with a great deal of frequency, um, and thought, oh, it doesn't really taste salty. Salt loses its saltiness when it mixes with impurities in the sense not to fulfill its function of seasoning, but allowing those impurities to overwhelm or overpower its usefulness. And so Jesus is is calling his community to, to be salt, to combine with their surroundings, to mix in, but not to be overwhelmed by those impurities so as to lose their usefulness but to have their effect. And then he says that they're the light of the world and that the purpose of the light is not to be hidden, not to be shaded or put under a a basket or a bowl, but to shine forth. Light shines into darkness, into places of physical and spiritual darkness. So our mission is both a gift and a task. And often in our practice of our faith, we can view this idea of mixing into the community or even being a part of our spiritual community as a threat to all the other things that are going on in our lives. Our busyness. Our privacy. Our desire to to appear as something better than we are. I'm reminded of a of a story for illustration. It's a fable. A, a man and a woman are out hiking. They're they're walking 
down a path. They're, they're busy professionals. They've got a couple hours on a Saturday. They're walking down a path and a frog calls out to them. Hey, if you kiss me three times, I'll turn into a king. So they smile and they pick up the frog and they put it in the little day pack they're carrying and they, they continue to walk down the path and a little while later the frog says, hey, I told you that if you kiss me three times, I'll turn into a king. And if you kiss me, I'll turn into a king and I'll, I'll stay with you forever. And they take the frog out of their pack and they look at it and they smile and then they put it back in the pack and they keep on walking. A few minutes later, the frog says, hey, I've told you if you kiss me three times, I'll turn into a king and I'll, I'll stay with you forever. And I'll give you everything that your heart could possibly desire. And they pull the frog out of the pack and they look at it and they smile and they look at each other and they they put it back in the pack. And they keep on walking. And a few minutes later, the frog calls out again and says, hey, I mean, I've told you, if you kiss me, I'll, I'll become a king. I'll never leave you. I'll give you everything you could possibly desire. And they pull the frog out of the pack and they go, hey, you know, look, we're really busy and we're just out here using the couple hours we have. And that's, you know, that's great. I mean, we don't need a king, but, you know, a talking frog, that's really cool. And they put it back in their pack. And they keep on walking. I want to be clear, I'm not the talking frog in this parable, although some of you might think so. Um, And if I talk any longer, because I've already gone way long, but that's my reputation. Um, But we can become so overwhelmed with the cares of the world and the busyness of life. We can be overwhelmed with our anxieties. We can be unsure of how it is that we are even to be salt and light that we're not. And so our task that Jesus is calling us to is to be a community of contrast. And I use that word specifically, and it's, it's a word that I didn't come up with myself. It was a idea that connected with me in my studies. We're fond as a church of thinking that we're countercultural, And in a sense, we are. And there's a large segment of the North American church that likes to be countercultural in the sense of even waging war with the culture around them. And there might be some value to a degree in that, but I think there's also a danger and a risk that we can become so countercultural that we're not salt and light, but we become an offensive odor, if you will, to the people who we're interacting with. We have to subscribe to the notions of Jesus' kingdom, not our kingdom. I've been reading, as I said a few weeks ago when I preached a previous sermon, a a, a book of theology written by uh, one of the most well-known theologians who happens to be of Asian cultural heritage. It sounds racist even to mention that, but I mention it because he looks at life through a different lens, an Eastern lens. A man who grew up in Japan, a man who 
was subjected to missionaries from the West. And he, he brings up this fascinating point that so much of the church has had a crusading mindset that we go out and we want to foist our faith on people. And we do it with the best of intentions, a desire that people would be saved. But he argues that that these one-way conversations that end up happening out of this mindset don't have their effect because people aren't truly mixing in to the culture. They're not listening. They're just talking. He argues that we need to have a, a crucified mindset. Jesus' notion of how to bring about the kingdom. Not to be a counter-cultural community, but a community of contrast. A community that's mixing with the culture around it and having its effect. It requires patience. It requires faithfulness. It requires confidence in what God is doing in this world, in us and through us. That God is working on his own terms. I don't want to make this sermon any longer, but I'm going to set aside my fear of, of being long. To I, I, As I prepared for this sermon, I, and thinking about a contrast community, <clears throat> what kept coming to my my mind was how this worked in my own life. When I was in the Marine Corps, and I, you know, you probably get sick of Marine Corps stories, but I spent a lot of my life there, so that's where a lot of my stories come from. But um, through God's gracious favor, I was always surrounded by Christians. And early in my career, when people would want to share the gospel with me or I'd come out to the parking lot and find a gospel track tucked under my windshield wiper or set on the seat of my Jeep, um, it, was, it bothered me. It, had, it didn't have an effect. It offended me. Because I didn't want to be reminded of, of who I was and what I needed. But many years later in my career, I found myself in an environment that... Um, stood for all the things that I thought I was, but, but truly wasn't on the inside. I was teaching. I got sent to the Naval Academy to <clears throat> participate in a graduate program in leadership and uh, character development. And my job was, after that, to, uh, to teach leadership and ethics and moral reasoning and character development. And the whole irony of it being that I, I looked like all those things on the outside, but I wasn't those things on the inside. And it wasn't an environment that I asked to be sent to. I didn't apply to go there. I just got picked and sent. And and yet I found myself surrounded by an environment that wasn't perfect. Every person who walked on that yard was not representative or emblematic of all of those virtues of honor, courage, and commitment, and character, and integrity, and all of those things that the military wants to espouse, but, but all of those people in their strengths and their weaknesses together made that place represent something. And being in that 
culture and being surrounded by people who in many ways different from me on the inside were a contrast to who I was. It, it began to have its effect on me. It began to convict me. of who I was and who I'd become. And who I didn't want to be anymore. And God began bringing um, Christian men and women into my life, not at my invitation. And it had its effect. And so it's very powerful to me. I, 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 I... Some of you may have had a conversion experience where somebody walked up to you, told you you were a sinner, preached you the gospel, and, and you submitted your heart and your life to Christ, and thank God that he works that way. But that's not the way it worked for me. And so God is not calling us to shy away from being evangelists. But he is calling us to be a culture of contrasts. That includes evangelists. And so we have to, so what makes a culture of contrast? How do we be that community? Well, we, we start by being focused on the future hope and promises that Christ offers us. You see, the world's way of bringing the kingdom about doesn't want to focus on the future. It's only focused on the present. How do I get what God is offering now? I don't want to wait. But a contrast culture focuses on the future hope of what God promises and participates in the present to make it a reality. It inhabits this crucified mindset that I talked about that views, that places others first, that loves neighbors as ourselves, that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's a, a community that inhabits a posture that's, that is God's righteousness. That's the idea that as we do the things that God is calling us to do, that, that we become righteous. And so we end in verse 16 where, where Jesus tells them, that they should let their light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus does not separate the being of his disciples, of his kingdom citizens, from the doing of his kingdom work. He calls us to both be and to do. You see, what, what the world is really looking for in many of the wrong places. And what the, the world desperately needs is true Christians living the true Christian life. Because what Jesus Christ has brought and what the church can offer is, is infinitely bigger and greater than anything that the world has to offer. Anything that you and I could look at and say, that reveals that I'm making it in this world. We claim 
that the Son of God has come into the world and he's sent his own Holy Spirit to live in us. And so our task, brothers and sisters, is is in the power of the Spirit to, to live a life that's characterized by blessing and joy and flourishing, no matter the present circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, we have to see it in its gospel context, it, that Christ lived and died and rose again so that you and I could live these things out. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Well, Father, um, we're just so grateful that that you've called us to a life of participating in, in building this kingdom with you. That your kingdom has, has indeed come into this fallen and broken world in the person and in the words and the works of Jesus, his life, death, and his resurrection. And, and that it's your design that the kingdom would continue to grow and to flourish through the flesh and blood of Christ that remains on earth, through this body of believers that is your church. And so, Father, we stand in faith that that your church will prevail, that it's not dependent on us being a perfect representation of these Beatitudes, Lord, but that you've called us together to be a community of people, a community of difference, a community that has strengths and weaknesses because, Father, we were not designed to do it alone. And, Father, your kingdom only grows in this world when your community is the salt of the earth, is the light of the world. And so, Father, give us grace to see ourselves in the light of these beatitudes, these blessed sayings. And help us to build a community that will grow disciples, that will make disciples and teach them to obey all that you have commanded. Help us to see that a contrast community is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we could offer to the world. That the world looks at us and wants to see us living out what it is and who it is that we say that we follow. So help us to build a community that will endure the test of time and judgment. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.